This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. I happened to be uh, working on something that involved a mechanical robot arm. And I started thinking, well, this seems very almost human. Well, of course, it isn't human. What would it be thinking if it were thinking? And so that led to that part of the book. And it seemed like an interesting foil to the main character, who's a bull gargoyle who's possessed by a god. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Paul Nemser, commended in the National Poetry Competition 2014 with his poem After the Calm. Congratulations, Paul. Thank you so much. Uh, and I know you've flown here just yesterday from Cambridge in the States. I might as well begin, I think, by asking you a little about how you began to write poetry and, and what you've done since. Well, I uh, began writing poetry when I was a child. My mother read me poems before I could read. And uh, I started writing poems almost as soon as I could write. And that continued. I continued very much interested in poems through high school, college. Uh, I got a master's degree in writing from Columbia, and I've written ever since. And you had some rather famous teachers along the way. I did. I had amazing teachers. My first famous teacher was Robert Lowell. That was an extraordinary experience. He, he was had this ability to make every poem seem like something to be taken seriously. And he made us take the act of writing seriously. He didn't tend to edit people's work, but he talked about what the writing process was. And for me, the biggest, maybe most important influence probably was he, he liked rough-hewn poetry. And he talked about people like Sir Thomas Wyatt and Sir Walter Raleigh, those early Renaissance poets and, and their kind of rough style as they were absorbing Italian models and others into English. So he got me to like that, and I have liked them ever since. And, and then another same kind of idea, the, the rough-hewn poet was Ted Hughes, who became a big influence on me at that time as well. Were you taught by Hughes too? Um, no, I wasn't taught by Hughes, but I, I simply uh, really liked Crow, and uh, I read lots of Hughes uh, in my college years and thereafter. So then at Columbia, I worked with famous poets too. Uh, Stanley Kunitz was the biggest influence on me of those. Stanley had this gift for taking a student's poem and making it more itself than it was at the start. So he was ruthless as an editor, but he taught you how to edit. And he had this gift for making it your poem still, even after the editorial process, not his poem. So that was a wonderful experience. And then uh, I also worked with Elizabeth Bishop at Harvard, you know, an amazing poet. And, and her uh, focus in a lot of ways was precision. But for me, an aspect of that was... Uh, she lived in Brazil for a long time. She wrote about Brazil, and she translated Brazilian poetry wonderfully. And I came to love Brazil later in life and visited many times, wrote about it, and uh, also uh, fell in love with the poetry there. So that was a kind of unlikely influence of Elizabeth Bishop for me. Your answer has taken my thought process off in two directions. So the first thing I want to ask you about is editing poems and how you do that. Mm -hmm. And then I'd like to ask you another question about translation, because you've published 
co-authored, I think, translations from Ukrainian poetry. Is That's that right? true. So the first question, tell me about how poems are edited. Well, my process is I, I write a first draft. I, I tend to like my first drafts much too much. But I do a lot of editing early on. I, I get it to a point of what I think is repose. But experience has generally shown me that what I think is repose that after this initial edit is not, and that it needs some kind of help. So one thing I do is uh, subject it to review in a workshop sometimes. That gives me other people's views and sometimes leads quickly to an edit, so it short circuits some of the process. But it often takes me years. I put the poem away, I come back to it, I just let it evolve over time. So it's quite a long process for me. Tell me a little bit about translation. When I was at Columbia, Stanley Kunitz asked a group of us to undertake translation of some Ukrainian poets uh, and working with some Ukrainian language uh, speakers, initially people from the University of Manitoba and then the, the Ukrainian poet and playwright uh, novelist Bodan Boychuk. I got literal translations, I and, and the other folks, and... and uh, we created poems out of those literals. Uh, and then our, what we came up with, Bodan Boychuk would kind of look at and say, well, it's not really like that in Ukrainian, or it is really like that in Ukrainian. And he, it was an amazing experience because it really gave you a sense of what was going on in the original language where we didn't speak the language. That was that one of the poets was alive at the time, and there was a political concern about if, if he didn't get published in the States, would he be it? in danger. This was the 70s, uh, so it was from the Soviet Union. And then the other poet was uh, one who died in the 1920s, but was a wonderful poet, Bodan Antonich, and he uh, hadn't been translated much. And so Mark Rundman and I and Bodan Boychuk translated him. So that was the second book from the 70s. With the trio of teachers that you mentioned, and there are others too, I think, did translation take the scope of your writing often to places that you wouldn't otherwise have gone? Do you oh, think? yeah. Um, well, just the process when you translate somebody, their work gets in your blood and you start to think unconsciously. You're driven to think in imagery that the other person might have used. And I found my work veering in the directions of the, the two poets, Ivan Drach and Bodan Antonich. I didn't really publish this too much except in magazines, but... Um, Brecht, I translated some, uh, and uh, Paul Ceylon and from the German. And so that was an important couple of influences mm. on me too. And I think you might have traveled to Russia because of what I have read about your collection, Taurus. Yeah. Except I'm not sure if I really believe what I've read. So can you tell us <laughs> just a little bit about sure. uh, how you open up that collection, the story that you tell? Sure. My son was in uh, St. Petersburg ah, for, so a, it is uh, true. for a school program, and so I went to visit him. And then that was many days, and I fell in love with St. Petersburg. And then I saw there was a literary program, summer literary seminars at that time was held in St. Petersburg. And so in 2006, the, the year after, I went there. And so I was there for three weeks. So the total of a um, little more than a month, uh, all in all, that I was in St. Petersburg uh, in one year and in the other. And during that time, uh, I really uh, 
came to be moved by that city, and I can talk about that. But the book, Taurus, has an introduction in which it says that I was staying in a hotel, and I was staying in a rather uncomfortable bed, and uh, it was near uh, White Nights, and so it was the time when the, the sun barely sets, and it was hot. People stay up all night carousing, and it was quite a strange, exciting time. In the introduction, I say that one of the rooms was open next to me and that uh, I found a manuscript in there. And then I, uh, it was in uh, Cyrillic and I didn't understand it. So I took it down to the desk clerk and he did some reading. And this, as the introduction suggests, uh, gave rise that that was the source of the book. And at the end of it, the desk clerk says, bull meets girl and all hell breaks loose. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the... Uh, and that is the story of the collection. Indeed, that, that's what the book is yeah. about. What I can say about that is, yes, I stayed in a hotel like that. Yes, it was a room like that. Yes, they served, you know, kasha and eggs for breakfast. Yes, the door was open. And I found my manuscript there, but I found my manuscript not in physical form, but in my imagination. And I found it because the city was so phantasmagorical. There's been a history of, of that in literature for a long time. And the water, the reflection of the, the buildings, the buildings like stage sets, the sometimes wild events that you see happening on the streets. It's the only city I've ever been in that has a statue of a nose in it, in honor of Gogol's story. That was one piece of it. Uh, another is that I and, and my wife both are of, you could say, uh, East European, but certainly uh, to some degree Russian origin, Russian, Ukrainian. Her family's from Belarus and, and Georgia. So I, I feel a strong connection anyway with uh, people of that region. And I was there alone and I wrote a, a draft of a piece about my wife uh, being somewhere else. We're both Tauruses. We're both from that astrological sign. And uh, I saw this, the constellation in the sky, and I thought, wow, she could see that too if she were up at the right time. So the same thing is governing us, and even though we're not in the same place, there's this connection. And so all of those things uh, added to it. Plus, when I investigated who Taurus is, who is that constellation? It turned out that it was, it was the bull in the Europa myth. The myth had been important to both of us. And, you know, here there's the amazing Titian of the Europa and the National Gallery. But maybe the best Titian Europa is in Boston. And it's a spectacular painting, which I've spent a lot of time looking at. So a lot of things came together. That's great. I guess I'm now starting to see a sort of surrealistic strain in your work that perhaps is there in what we might call Eastern European or, or Russian literature. Is that the case? Yes, uh, I would say an attempt to explore what, what it means to be human by considering what might be if one were non-human <laughs> uh, and variations on that, additions and subtractions of animal characteristics to people that uh, you know, again, I was just at the British Museum uh, yesterday and seeing all those centaurs and minotaurs and so forth. It's the same kind of impulse, although I don't, I don't mean to uh, equate too, too facilely, but 
Russian literature has been a huge influence on me in general. Russian poetry is a big influence on me. I happened to be uh, working on something that involved a mechanical robot arm. And I started thinking, well, this seems very almost human. Well, of course, it isn't human. What would it be thinking if it were thinking? And so that led to that part of the book. And it seemed like an interesting foil to the main character, who's a bull gargoyle who's possessed by a god. Sure. <laughs> Which brings us neatly, in a couple of ways, to this poem, I think, because you have now got me thinking about the birds in this poem, particularly. They are quite an interesting feature of the poem. But I also wanted to make a neater connection still with that collection, which won the New American Poetry Award, I think. It did. And your success in the National Poetry Competition with this poem, After the Calm. Why would you enter a competition? Why would you enter a poetry competition? A poetry competition is, it at least creates the possibility of... uh, getting one's work out into the world to be to be known and indeed that's happened with this competition it's been wonderful so far and i see it as a as an opportunity to uh, have one's work looked at by very very good poets and to possibly gain a recognition from a relatively objective um, these are often blind competitions it creates that opportunity. There's a tendency to, in uh, literary magazines historically that uh, they tend to publish people they know. And that's natural, and I, I understand that. But then if you're not the people they know, how do you get published? And competitions provide that possibility. So for me, this particular competition, um, I entered it because I think I became aware of it, uh, this competition in general, through Poets and Writers, maybe a couple of years ago the, through the magazine. But but I entered this one because I was aware of the poetry of the judges, and I really admired them. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe a sympathetic ear. I think what I don't want you to do, although I think I've penned a question for myself, so of asking you to rather explain the poem. I'm very intrigued by the title and I was very interested that you used the word repose earlier so the the poem reaches a point at which it may be beginning to settle and become the final poem as it were. It's kind of interesting to hear you use that word in relation to the intriguing title for this poem but can you tell me a little bit about it and then we'd like to hear you read it. Well the title I can tell you, well it's it's essentially telling you about the poem. So a moment comes in one's life when you get old enough that you uh, begin to think, well, perhaps this life from now on is going to be a folding up rather than an unfolding. And then the thought occurred to me when I was having this this uh, line of thought that maybe one would get to a point where one kind of wanted that one one wanted the limitation or the the very least one's wants would be circumscribed by that limitation that comes with life folding up rather than unfolding so when i had those thoughts i kind of got panicked could that be me could could i be such a person so that's what this poem is trying to address the feeling that one had before one had the thought begins to seem like a false calm. So what happens after that? What happens after the calm? How do you deal with it? 
So that's kind of what the poem is doing. That's great. And I think that absolutely is the sense that the poem left me with, that in many ways it's embracing um, actually a very appealing picture of change. And yet at the same time, certainly by the end of the poem, you feel the position has shifted slightly and uh, that change is not entirely welcome. Is that is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you would mind reading it for us. I'd be glad to. After the calm. Our furniture is turning to nails ends and cow's ears. We've stored no provisions for molassesless times. Like used up, riled up hives, our hearts. Like pancakes burning in old butter, our backs. On the bus ride after the geriatrician, we smell angels powdering the breezes with lavender and sit down to dream and lie down to wake and wake to read the split nutshells in our pockets to predict that a sheep will dance with weevils and a salmon lay down with a leaning willow, thinking someone always wants the rides nobody wants, which breaks our calm. Bus music jostles us like shifting tide where islands once appeared upside down in the harbor and the loudest movement was a clam dropped on rocks, a shard splatter, a ganglion. Bus crunches branch. We seize up. We sway. I cradle your knuckles as in olden days when we dipped a few fingers in wine. We brushed only each other's lips crooned only songs titled, I will, for hours in a field momentarily green. I will, I will survive, I will rise, I will follow, I will be, I will wait for you. Honey, wake up, you say, kneeing my hip and smelling of eucalyptus. I love your eyes, especially when we're shaken, flickering in glass, in weaves of raspberries that thorn across fences fall into gaps. The bus lets us off near a panic of birds who pluck the fall-apart's rotting red. Beaks veer drunk into a rising cloud, and we get silly and scream like wingier species that tear prey to bubbling violet. O goddess of raspberries, Grant us red hands. Shrieks, chucks, pipes, where from? Lilt of songbirds in a social praxis? In the frantic, dizzily companionable wane of this day, neither still nor sweet. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit www.poetrysociety.org.uk.